Okay, so you're probably aware, if you're a guest, that we're in the book of Acts. We, we started <clears throat> this past September a series that was titled Unconquered, From One Life to All Nations. And so we've been in it for about four and a half months now, and we're up to chapter 11. So you can open up your Bibles. Chapter 11 of the book of Acts. And I'm going to be reading in verse 19 of chapter 11. We have to read through chapter 12. And so I'm going to kind of kick it into overdrive as I read, and I trust you'll be able to follow along. Title of this morning's message is Mission Tensions. Mission Tensions. Verse 19. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many of the people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch for a whole year. They met with the church and taught a great many people. And it was in Antioch that the disciples were first called Christians. Now in those days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them was named Agabus and stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over the whole world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everywhere according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. Chapter 12, verse 1. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now, when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city, and it opened for them of its own accord, and they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure the Lord has sent me this his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that, that the Jewish people were expecting. 
When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to him, motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Now, when the day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea and Caesarea and and spent time there. Verse 20 of chapter 12. Now, Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended upon the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, The voice of God and not of man. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give glory. He did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. Let's pray together. Speak, O Lord, to us this morning. God, we have a, a vast passage that we have to cover. We are aware that we are here hungry. Lord, we need you. We desire to encounter you. Lord, there is a conference being assembled later on this week where pastors will come in this room as well. We ask you to speak, O Lord, through your word. We declare your trust. We declare trust in you and our confidence in you to deliver to us what we need today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You know, we find ourselves in a fascinating place in our study of the book of Acts, a place where there are a number of of tensions that are beginning to emerge in the early church. Now, Now, a tension is probably best described as a place where there are two forces that are pulling you from different directions. Neither force is necessarily bad, but they're, they're tugging on you from different sides, and that creates a, a pressure, a strain, a, a, a tension. I mean, the moms that are here with small kids are saying, I know exactly what you're talking about because they live in a relentless tension between needing more energy and needing more sleep. A manager lives in the tension between her boss above and the people below that she leads. And that pushes at her and pulls her and strains at her. Gay marriage is now legal in Florida, which means there is a tension for Christians to uphold a biblical vision for marriage on one hand 
and at the same time, love and serve and reach those who may disagree with them. Here's one that visits each and every one of us every single day. According to Scripture, we are both saints and sinners, that we have somehow through the love of God and as a result of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we have been declared righteous, and yet each and every one of us know that every day we've got some kind of sin working for us. And so we, you know, we think, well, I don't need this much food, but, but I eat it anyway. Or I don't want to be honest about this because I might be fond. We have all these things that are kind of working within our souls, and yet we love Jesus. We have this tug, this tension within us where we love Jesus. We, 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 we long to do good, but there is evil that still rests within. It's a tension. It's, it's one that we have to navigate and live within each and every day. So in this section of Scripture, our author Luke, he, he outlines certain tensions that are beginning to emerge within the early church as the gospel marches forward in them and through them. Again, places where there are two forces that are kind of straining at the church, pulling them from, from different directions. And for the purposes of this morning, of our study this morning, I want to offer to you three specific tensions that we can look at together that I think will help us to organize this, this lengthy passage a little bit better. Here's tension number one. It's the tension between the mission and training. The mission and training. Now, <clears throat> let's just remember that part of what Luke, what the author of, of Acts, Luke, is trying to do, what he's writing in Acts, is he's seeking to portray how the Great Commission was applied in the early church. Remember, Great Commission, Matthew chapter 28, go Therefore, make disciples, baptizing in the name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. So in, in, in Acts chapter 11, we, see, we begin to see that the Great Commission is not just this outward thing where the church is always expanding, always growing, always moving outward. In other words, the Great Commission is not just this unbridled, breathless, gospel passion that's resulting in gospel expansion but it also involves making disciples. It also involves teaching and training and and applying the gospel in one's life. And that's what brings us to the person of Barnabas. So in the beginning of this section that we began to read, it takes us back to those that were scattered. Now, that's a reference back to Acts chapter 8, where those that were persecution came to the church and, and these folks were scattered. And uh, unlike what typically happens when people are experiencing suffering and persecution and they have to immediately leave their homeland, these folks understood that part of the reason God was setting them in motion was to do mission. And so they arrived at Antioch and they immediately began to witness to the power and the reality of Jesus Christ. And as a result, people were converted. As a result, a church emerged. And you can look at verse 22, the report of this the report of this church emerging, came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and so they sent Barnabas to Antioch. Now, there's probably a couple of different reasons why Barnabas was sent to Antioch. First was to examine what was going on and look for the evidence of God's grace that was among them to kind of 
certify that what was going on was really born of the Spirit of God. So look at verse 23, where it says, When he came and he saw the grace of God, he was glad. So you remember something of the backdrop of what's going on here in Acts, in that the Jerusalem believers, the the Jewish Christians, still were trying to to wrap their brain around the, the reality that God could reach people beyond the Jewish people, that he would reach the Gentiles. And that's what's begun to happen in chapters 8, 9, 10, and 11. And it's totally blowing them away. They can't believe this is going on, that the Gentiles are receiving the Holy Spirit. And so when Antioch, a town that is exclusively Gentiles, begins to to, to become converted and a church emerges there, the apostles feel a sense of responsibility to investigate and to authorize the reality of the work of God. It's kind of an early form of quality control among the new believers. And so they send Barnabas to to kind of check it out. But there there was a second reason that Barnabas was sent as well, and we can see that also in Chapter 11, verse 23, he sees the grace of God. He was glad and, quote, he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. So Barnabas goes there with his gifts. I mean, the the name Barnabas means literally a son of consolation, a son of of encouragement. So this this guy is like a this guy's like a coach. He's you can't be around Barnabas without feeling encouraged because he's just affirming and supporting and encouraging and consoling and all of that is now being poured out towards the believers in Antioch. And this is the effect in verse 24. It says, "And a great many of the people were added to the Lord." So he goes there. He begins applying his gifts And the church grows even more. Now, this is what's so surprising about what happens next, because he takes this surprising step. Rather than organizing these new believers for mission and expansion, which would have been, by the way, totally understandable. I mean, he's in a new city. It's a new region. It's a new market. He's got resources. He's got people. He's got momentum. He might as well pull the trigger and launch a new franchise. But look what Barnabas does in verse 25. It says, so Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. So there's a sense where Barnabas has this has this opportunity, the church is growing, the believers are assembled, but what he sees is not this, this, this sense where we always have to be so committed to mission that we neglect going deep, but he just takes these believers and gathers them together, and for the next year, he teaches them and trains them, and he realizes, hey, I've hit the limits of my gift here, and he goes off and he recruits Saul to come and to continue the project. In other words, he goes inward. And there's a couple of things that kind of surface as we're looking at this tension between mission and training that's emerging in the church. And one is just through the example of Barnabas. For instance, this tension reveals the humility of this man. 
I mean, once the church began to grow, Barnabas seems to have come to an unusual, perhaps even a shocking decision. And that was, you know what? I'm not sure I'm the best guy to lead us into this next phase. I think I need to go look for somebody who has a different kind of gift. I think I need to go look for for Saul. And what's unusual about that is because this is the guy, Barnabas is the guy that Jerusalem sent. He was, he was their, their courier. He was the one authorized by Jerusalem. And not only that, but as a result of coming, growth happened in this church. Remember verse 24, where it says, and a great many people were added to the Lord. That happened after Barnabas arrived. And so how easy would it be for Barnabas to conclude, hey, I've I've got the goods, I'm the man, I'm a player, I'm the one that can make things happen on the ground here, but he doesn't do that. He goes after Saul. Because for Barnabas, his heart was not about his position, his role. It was more about the people and what they needed to move on to the next step in the Lord. It was about the people, and who they needed, and who would serve them the best. Let me ask you a question. We all have areas that we're serving. At least we should all have areas that we're serving. In the areas that you are serving, do, do you look for ways to involve people who are gifted? You know, there's this sense where, I, I mean, you feel it, I feel it, we all feel it, that, that we can oftentimes just want to be careful around those that are gifted in the same places that we are or those that are gifted in areas we're presently serving. What about doing what Barnabas did and looking for people that are more gifted than we are and trying to involve them in what we're called to serve in? I mean, if you're here in in the band, do you ever find yourself recruiting other musicians, perhaps better musicians. I mean, isn't there a sense where we recruit folks like that and it creates a limitation, it creates a contrast with our gift, it perhaps creates an opportunity for them to replace us? Kind of like what Saul did with Barnabas. I mean, I think there's a temptation that we all have that, you know, to just kind of ignore the giftings of of others. I know I have it. You know, Josh has been leading the band and leading the sound technicians for years. On the other hand, and in contrast to that, I know nothing about bands, and my only gift to sound techs is to, to frustrate them every chance I get. So before the service recently... Um, we, we've been using two microphones on Sunday morning because occasionally... Some problem may happen with the microphone. Have you ever seen that happen? <laughs> Occasionally, a problem may happen with the microphone. And, but, you know, I was just, I was having such a hassle with the two microphones that I walked in one Sunday morning and I informed Josh I wasn't going to wear two microphones. I think it's a redundant system. It's an unnecessary system. And, uh, and so why should we do it? And, and, and this, there was a sense that in my attitude toward Josh, I didn't ask him. I didn't invite him into a discussion. I just arrogantly proclaimed what I was going to do. And Josh was, Josh was totally cool about it. And so I just I left. I went out in the lobby before the service to, to greet folks and to make folks feel welcome. Hi, I'm Dave. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm humble. I only wear one microphone. Have you noticed? And as I was doing that, I just, God just began to convict me 
of my arrogance. Uh, that, that, that here's somebody who's been serving in this area for a long time, and I come in and I just begin to tell him, you know, what it's going to be like. And isn't it the reality that most of life is played out in routine moments like that, routine moments where we have to choose, are we going to serve self or are we going to serve God? Are we going to look beyond ourselves or is it just going to be about what, what we, we like? And I realized in that moment how unlike Barnabas I really am. Barnabas was a man who recognized greater gifts. Barnabas was a man who welcomed greater gifts. And I wasn't doing that at all. Well, Josh was really cool when I apologized to him. And I learned something about that. I want to be like Barnabas. I want to be a man who recognizes greater gifts. Because Barnabas was like that. Now, here's another thing that emerges in this tension is that by, by encouraging people and, and seeking Saul... It reminds us that the church is more than mission. Now, the church is certainly about mission, but it's more than mission. In other words, the Great Commission is not simply about going. It's not simply about going and then ends there, but the Great Commission stands in this tension. It presents this tension to the church where we go, but as we're going, we make disciples, we teach, we baptize so Barnabas is encouraging the converts to stand strong. He, he preaches to them. He teaches them. He goes. He recruits Saul. He, Agabus comes in and begins to prophesy, and that has an edifying and a building up uh, uh, effect on the church back then. So the New Testament is not just a story of urgent expansion among the church, always pushing out. But there are these t- attempts along the way. that remind us that the church has other purposes than simply mission. Now, if you go to the website of Four Oaks, one of the first things that you'll see that'll pop up on the website is the statement that we have about why we exist. It says, Four Oaks exists to treasure, grow, and go in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that statement, treasure, grow, and go in the gospel of Jesus Christ, that statement is our attempt to acknowledge and to live within the tensions that we see emerging in Acts chapter 11, the tension between the outward and the inward. And every week there is this tension in local churches and in the lives of believers between treasuring God, going, and growing. And we live kind of in the tension, the push and pull of that, which is why you see some churches that, that trend towards being just about community. We're just about community here. Or we're just a missional church. That's all, all we want to be. Actually, in our statement, in our mission statement, we noted a third. So it's not just inward, outward, but it's also upward. Treasure, go, grow. Upward, inward, outward. Because we never want to collapse the church down into just one thing. Four Oaks must be about more than just going. We have to be about more than simply inward. We have to be about all of them, trying to live, emphasizing appropriately each thing and neither and none at the expense of the other. I brought a quote with me this morning from uh, Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology. He once said, quote, we should beware of any attempts to reduce the purpose of the church to only one of these three, or to say that that should be our primary focus. 
So the church lives and exists and dwells within the tension of inward, upward, outward. And that's part of what the early church is beginning to experience as we move through Acts chapter 11. So that's tension number one, mission and care, mission and training. Here's tension number two, the tension between James and Peter. The tension between James and Peter. Now, chapter 12 opens with what I believe is a, is a chilling visual. It says, about the same time, Herod the king, listen to this, laid violent hands upon some who belonged to the church. Violent hands. And among them was James, brother of John. James, the guy who was a key leader among the 12. One of the three closest to the Lord, Peter, John, James. So Herod kills James with the sword, and the passage said that pleased the people. And, so, and so, so they seized Peter with the intent to publicly execute him as well. And so Herod understands what he's doing. I mean, this is like a, like a cartel organizing a hit on the major leaders of the next cartel. In other words, the Christian movement is driven by leadership. And so this is Herod organizing a hit on two of the top three leaders within the Christian organization. You know, most, of the, most people know of the, of the assassination of Abraham Lincoln, but fewer people know that that was actually part of a plot that was designed to take out the top leadership So on the same night that Lincoln was assassinated, there was an assassination attempt on the Secretary of State, Seward. There was an assassination attempt on the Vice President and on General Grant as well. So there was, you know, the plot was you strike the leaders and the nation will scatter. Herod had the same idea. Strike the Christians, the church scatters. Strike the leaders, the church scatters. And so he rests Peter before Passover, and he imprisons him, and he places four squads. That's 16 people, 16 guards, two of them outside the prison, outside the prison, that the, 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 you know, the cell that he's in, two in the prison cell, Peter between those two and chained to those two, and the other sets of four on deeper in the prison. And let's just pick it up in chapter 12, verse 6. Now, when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was, I love this, sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him and light shone in the cell. And this is what the angel has to do. He struck Peter. Peter's like, you know, he's sawing logs. You know, he's... He is, he's snoring. It's bouncing off the chamber of the prison. James was just killed under the same circumstances, but the work of God in the life of this man is such that he's at peace. He's, be, he's probably going to die in his mind, but he's between these two. And an angel wakes him up, kicks him awake, says, listen, it's time to get up, get dressed, get out. And so he begins moving, and the gates open up, the doors open up as he's He's walking out. And, and, and here's the thing. He's saved. He gets on the outside. Now, now here's the thing that's, that's this really unexpected development within Acts chapter 12 is persecution comes and suffering breaks out and James is killed, 
But Peter is rescued. James is gone. Peter remains. James is lost. Peter is saved. Why? Why? It all just seems so random. Why? I mean, was God slow to arrive too late for James, but just in time for Peter? Did God somehow fumble the ball so that what was supposed to happen didn't happen? See, the tension we see emerging now in chapter 12 is, and that they begin to experience as the early church is that we know that the mission requires leaders, but we just may not know the leader. They, they just not, may, may not be the leaders that we assume are going to lead us forward. So, so you know, they're expecting all along that it's going to be James. I mean, we read the Gospels, we re- read early Acts, and we're totally set up to think that James is being positioned for the future. I mean, he's been trained by the Lord. He's part of the big three. He's there for the transfiguration. He's a witness to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He's there at the ascension of Jesus Christ. There is this this kind of Jameis Winston feel about this guy that he's being positioned for greatness in the next league. And then one day, Herod snaps his fingers, and he's gone. James executed And this is beginning to break in, in the, break in upon the mind of the early church. And they're beginning to realize, wow, you know, it's hard to even know how to get oriented to all this. You know, when you follow a leader who is crucified at the apex of his ministry, it leaves one a little baffled over where the plan is supposed to go and who's really leading this thing and how it's supposed to move forward. You know, I think if you've been around here at Four Oaks more than three years, you would probably say that you never expected that Pastor Paul would be the lead pastor or that the Olams would be here or that the Harveys would be here. In other words, they weren't the leaders that we expected to move us forward. And we get that. (laughs) Believe me, we get that. But, you know, when you read Acts, you, you find this this tension that the mission never moves forward in the way you expect it. It never moves forward in a way that's predictable. There's, the Spirit of God is always at work keeping believers dependent upon God. And that's part of the design of the confounding nature of the mission. But there's, the, there's another facet that we begin to see that comes into focus in, in chapter 12, and that's another facet of this James-Peter tension. And that is that suffering becomes a method, becomes a means for mission. You know, it's the last thing that you expect, but it actually begins to happen where suffering becomes the means by which the gospel goes forward. This section opens, remember I mentioned this earlier, it opens with Antioch receiving the gospel because Christians had been persecuted in Acts chapter 8 and scattered in Acts chapter 8. Let me ask you a question. When you're forced to leave an area, if you were forced to leave Tallahassee, would you be thinking, oh, great, gospel opportunity because I'm being persecuted and suffering here? I mean, we just moved down to Tallahassee about 18 months ago, and it was all we could do, do to hit the reset button and get oriented to all that God was doing and relocating us down here. For, for these guys, they're immediately going to Antioch and just saying, yes, this is it. This is why that we're here to witness, to be a witness for the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
And so it's experiences like this for the early church that is reminding them day in and day out that we follow a suffering Savior. You know, God converts Saul in chapter 9. Saul, who eventually becomes Paul, he gets converted in chapter 9. This is what God says to Ananias about Saul. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. And so part of the tension that begins to emerge is that these Christians are experiencing some really bad moments. But they begin to understand that their worst moments can become their best witness. That in these bad moments, there's a witness that can come about, that can come in no other way. That suffering becomes a kind of microphone for God's people, meaning that it amplifies the reality of their faith. It, 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 it raises the volume on their faith. People hear it in a whole new way because it's spoken through a voice that is suffering. You know, it was said of the early church that as lions, as the lions in the Colosseum were ripping apart one Christian, five new converts would rise and leave the Colosseum. In other words, the way they suffered became a microphone for their witness, which is what ultimately led Tertullian to write that famous quote, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. In other words, the way the Christians suffered actually attracted people to Jesus because they saw that their faith was so real. It was so substantive. It was so legitimate. It was so potent that they were willing to die if necessary for it. And their worst moments became their best witness. And I wonder if we've really thought about the reality that God's mission may flow through us even as we suffer. Maybe what you found out this past week that is leading you into suffering may be the very thing of God setting the stage so that your one life hears you in a whole new way. There are undoubtedly people that are sitting here because they have watched somebody suffer and they've learned something powerful about God in that experience. There's a sense, there's a sense where the witness, the volume on the witness was turned up because they saw something in that suffering. Our worst moments become our best witness. I was talking to a Christian leader, respected Christian leader recently who has cancer, and he was telling me about his cancer treatment. He said, you know, one of my prayers was that I would be able to care for those who are caring for me. And, and I heard that, and I honestly thought, you know, you suffer a lot differently than I do. Because my prayer would be that the Lord would heal me, but that I would still be able to benefit from the same sympathy that I would get if he didn't heal me. And the reason for that is I, I don't always see the James-Peter tension, that sense where our worst moments, our suffering can become our best witness. And so that's the second tension that the, this new emerging church, Gentile church, is beginning to experience, and, and Jewish church is beginning to experience. Tension number three, and this is the last one, the tension between humility and Herod. The tension between humility and Herod. Okay, so the Herod of chapter 12 is Herod Agrippa. So this is the guy who was the grandson of the Herod who sought to kill the infants when, when Jesus was born. 
And the chapter opens with Herod killing James, verse 2, and the chapter closes with the angel of God killing Herod. It's verse 23, or verse 2 and verse 23. And in between those two points of this chapter, you have Herod imprisoning Peter, Herod killing the sentries because they lost Peter. Where's Peter? They didn't know. They lost him. And then Herod giving a speech to the people where the people ultimately shout, He is the voice of God. And God took him out because it says specifically in verse 23, He did not give glory to God. And the tension that begins to emerge, the tension we see in Herod is that he didn't live balanced between the praise of man and the glory of God. That there was a sense where the praise of man was more important to him than the glory of God, so that when the praise of man came toward him, he moved toward it more than moving toward the glory of God. And so Herod becomes in the New Testament, in the book of Acts, this shocking reminder that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And when I read the story about Herod, what is so frightening about it is that he's no different than, than me or you. I mean, look at chapter 12, verse 2. He kills James, the brother of John the sword. Well, maybe he's a little different than us in that way. He's killing people. But, but he saw in verse 3 that it pleased the Jews. So he proceeded to arrest Peter also. In other words, he... He knows something's going to please another group, so he panders to that. In verse 20, we're told that he's angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and so, he, so they came to please him, and so he, that's where he dons his royal robes and he gives the speech, and the people begin to respond exactly the way they've been trained to respond, exactly the way they're forced to respond or they're going to have to deal with retribution from Herod. And that is, they, 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 they begin to praise him. It's the voice of God, they say, not of man. And he receives that praise. He does not give glory to God. He just receives it unto himself. And so for the second time in this chapter, the angel of God appears. But this time, it's not for rescue. It's for retribution. And the result of all of that is verse 24 of chapter 12. But... The word of God increased and multiplied. In other words, God reversed the evil of Herod so that killing James and even the arrest of Peter didn't massacre the Christians. It multiplied the Christians. It multiplied the message. And the name that was exalted was not the name of Herod, but it was the mighty name of Jesus Christ. And the tension became clear for the early church that, yes, God is going to do glorious things through us. Yes, he goes before us and invites us into the mission. Yes, he's gone before us and he's prepared good works for us to walk in. God will do glorious things through us, but we can't accept the glory. God will do glorious things through us, but we can't accept the glory. How are you doing transferring the glory to God? from the praise of men. When you are praised by others, how how are you doing there? How how are you doing at making sure God gets the glory? You know, there's a funny tension in Scripture where we are to be people, the church is to be people that lavish 
honor upon one another. Lavish encouragement. I, I copied down just a couple of passages and brought them this morning just so you'd see the scope and the call to honor. It starts all the way back with the Big Ten, the Ten Commandments. Honor your mother and father, Exodus chapter 20. Outdo one another in showing honor, Romans chapter 12. In other words, don't just honor. Outdo one another in showing honor. Honor widows, 1 Timothy 5. Honor elders, 1 Timothy 5 again. In fact, give double honors to elder, double honor. And I can say that because I'm not an elder here. The elders here are worthy, worthy of double honor. Peter kind of wraps it up completely in 1 Peter chapter 5. He says, honor everybody. Honor everybody. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Encouragement, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Therefore, encourage one another. Build one another up. 1 Timothy chapter 5. Don't rebuke an older man. Encourage him. Hebrews chapter 3 from the NIV. But encourage one another. How long? As long as it's still called today. So, the, the church is supposed to be this unique place where, like Barnabas, we are coming in and we're seeing the grace of God at work. We're, we're seeing the evidences of God's grace. And when we see them, we're not only moving toward them, but we're calling them out. We're thanking God for them. We're thanking people for them. We're, we're helping people to understand how God is at work in them and through them. We're honoring that appropriately, and yet... We don't allow the praise of that encouragement or that honor to end with us, to terminate upon us. Now, I'm, not, I'm not suggesting that we interrupt people who are praising us with, with public worship. <laughs> you know, hey, bro, I really, I really appreciated what you shared in fellowship group the other night. I thought that was wrong. Oh, hang on. Praise God from whom all blessings. Christians can do weird things. <laughs> you know, you, you, you share with somebody, you know, I, I really, you're a very gifted singer. I love the way you, you play guitar. Oh, no, no, it's not me. It's the Lord. Well, it looked like you. <laughs> and I'm pretty sure if it was the Lord, he would have done an even better job. <laughs> but you go with that. If you See, we do... We do these, these weird things. G- giving glory to God doesn't deny our abilities. It doesn't ignore our gifts. It just, it just transfers glory to him. I'm not as vigilant as the, at this as I, I need to be, but sometimes when someone's encouraging me, I remember to have this kind of silent transaction with God where I say, God, I, I say to the person, thank you. And I say to God, I give you the glory. You know, kind of sending it forward, because what that does is that protects us from the sin of Herod, where we just accept the glory for something God gave to us. Accept the glory for the way God is using us. Accept the glory for the grace of God at work in us. Now, I know the way that, you know, messages like this can land on us. We we can begin to feel the tensions ourselves, the tension of mission and training, the tension of James and Peter, the tension of humility in Herod. And maybe you feel like you're not doing well today with the, with the praise that comes from other people. You're realizing, yeah, I locate myself in the center far too much. Or, I, or maybe you're not suffering in a way that makes any statement about the gospel whatsoever. 
But I, I just want us all to remember that the early church was moving forward, not because they were perfect, but they were because they were following one who was perfect. They were following a Savior who had gone before him, and he was perfect in how he lived, and they were trusting in his works, not their own. And because his works were completed and the Spirit was now abiding in them and is abiding in us, God now meets us in the tensions with power for the present and hope for the future. So please, don't, don't leave today thinking, man, these tensions are big. These tensions are huge. Leave here thinking our Savior is great. And he is there to help us because he loves us. Let's pray.